You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Présenterons bientôt sur cet écran le premier film entièrement détourné de l'histoire du cinéma. Un toast aux exploités pour l'extermination des exploiteurs. Les leçons de l'insurrection de Budapest enfin portées à l'écran. Le film de référence est fortement déconseillé aux lecteurs du Nouvel Observateur. La dialectique peut-elle casser les briques La dialectique peut-elle casser des briques La dialectique peut-elle casser des briques Les petits chefs morts pendant que les bureaucrates constatent. <rire> si les prolétaires s'attaquent aux masses médias, notre idéologie va refroidir. Même si on a le cul dans l'eau tiède. <rire> J'en parlerai à mon ministre de la Culture. Il faudra interdire tous ces films. L'adaptation détournée du doublage a été réalisée par l'Association pour le développement des luttes de classe et la propagation du matérialisme dialectique. Un épisode pendant de l'âpre combat entre le prolétariat à gauche et la bureaucratie à droite. Quel pied J'entends les mots dialectiques et je sors ma culotte. Et blanc dans les dents des bureaucrates Tu me plais pas, Larbin. Ils ont tous ton air péninou là-dedans. Ça doit puer la sorbonne des mauvais soirs. La liberté est le crime qui contient tous les crimes. Ce ne sera plus une énigme pour ceux qui viendront bientôt dans cette salle. Voir un film directement lié à l'histoire universelle où le dialogue s'est armé pour vaincre ses propres conditions. Répugnante saloperie de bureaucrate. C'est avec tes tripes que... Et tu connais la suite. Crève, salope. En attendant, vous allez produire et consommer. Les idées s'améliorent. Le sens de l'adaptation du dialogue y participe. Entre autres, vous verrez un bureaucrate prévoyant et lucide préparant ses tripes. Quand la dialectique devient force pratique, les bureaucrates en prennent plein la gueule. La dialectique peut-elle casser les briques Cours vite, camarade, le vieux monde est derrière toi et la Ligue aussi. The history of all hitherto existing podcasts are the history of class struggles. Comrades, I am your host, Mike White. Joining me is comrade Rob St. Mary. You know, the host of this podcast looks like a jerk. True, but it's not his fault. It's the producers. Also making his triumphant return as comrade Spencer Parsons. Hello. I'm glad to be back. 
This week we are looking at Can Dialectics Break Bricks? It's the 1973 film from René Viennet, which is a redubbing of the 1972 film Crush, which is also known as The Crush, and even released at one point as Kung Fu Fighting, believe it or not. Can Dialectics Break Bricks retells the story of Crush as the story of a bunch of rotten bureaucrats who have opposed the working class long enough. The workers look forward to the day when the landlords will all hang, priests will be cut in two, and the churches will be burned to the ground. We will work to untangle some of this mess there is no spoiler warning for this episode. Spencer, had you experienced this film before I asked you to be on this podcast? Yeah, this is actually one of the the few that I have experienced before. Watched it a few times a, a, a while back in the context of bringing Keith Sanborn, who was uh, your interview guest, to a festival that I programmed in Austin, Texas, uh, Cinema Texas. This is a film that we, uh, among uh, several of, uh, you know, that are are, uh, Mr. Sanborn's personal handiwork or that he had provided uh, subtitles for that we showed. So that was kind of the original context and also had been the kind of asshole that uh, keeps a copy of the Society of the Spectacle at all times in my backpack and another copy uh, perpetually by the toilet. Good place for it. I guess. Yeah, it used to get lots of comments uh, from people. That that was part of the reason to put it there. But uh, quite honestly, the other part of the reason was, uh, you know, it's a kind of nice kicky reading that you can enter into at pretty much any page and, uh, you know, read for as long as it takes. Rob, how about yourself? I believe that you sent this to me probably in 2013, back in the old Halcyon days where I was pretty much on every single episode of the show. You sent it to me around the same time that we were going to watch Mock Up on Moo. For some reason, I've got these two kind of attached in my head. Uh, you can go back and look at that one, and we did kind of a two-parter on Scientology. But for some reason, I thought that this and that film were sent to me at the same time, and I didn't end up watching it then because we were going to do this show – and for some reason, it didn't happen. I think either the interview guest fell through or the co-host that, that we we're going to bring in fell through. So I believe this is like seven years in the making to get to this point. I did uh, watch it. I've watched it twice so far. And I have to say that after sort of the first experience through it, I like it more on the second viewing. I'm going to go back to a comment that was left on the first episode that I ever appeared on in this show. And that was from December of 2011. And I think Mike might know where I'm going on this, but it was when I did Blood Sucking Freaks, in which uh, a comment was placed that says, you guys really went overboard on the social commentary. So much so that this episode begins to feel like a lecture from a Marxist sociology teacher. Definitely not fun. Signed, Anonymous. So it's good to see Anonymous is back. I hear that they're working on um, getting a bunch of information and throwing it back on on the web if it's the same Anonymous. But I thought he would be into our Marxist sociology uh, teacher lecture of blood-sucking freaks. Uh, here, definitely, we will be talking about Marxism because I think it's kind of hard not to when you're talking about a lot of the stuff that's going on in this film. I have to address both of your guys' first-time viewings with this. Spencer, I had no idea that you worked for Cinema Texas. My first time watching Can Dialectics Break Bricks, I went on my honeymoon with my wife. Honeymoon as in it was our first trip after we got married. 
we flew down to Austin to go to Cinema Texas 2000. And I remember going to that screening. It was at like a warehouse or something. It felt like I was going to get stabbed driving through like an alley and coming up to a warehouse and going in thinking, what the hell's going to happen in here? Opening up the door and I can't remember. Was Keith was there, right? And so was Craig Baldwin. And that's where the mock-up on Moo connection comes in, Rob, because it would have been a perfect double feature or a third feature to this had we talked about Craig Baldwin and then moved into Can Dialectics Break Bricks. And yeah, we were supposed to have Keith on the show back in 2013. I went back two weeks ago and started looking at emails and... I have reached out to Rene VNA over the last couple of weeks and he said, Oh, talk to Keith. My Wi-Fi here in Paris sucks. Apparently over the intervening, uh, what would that be? Seven years, <laughs> they have become friends. And now Keith is okay talking about things because everything was all kind of up in the air as far as rights went with this film, with Keith's translation of it, with his version of it. And can you guys believe the? I mean, well, Rob, you didn't watch it before, but I have to ask you, Spencer, can you believe the quality of the copy that we just watched? Because the first time I watched it, it was not the best quality, plus it had lost its color in the CCAM to NTSC translation. And I thought that Crush was a black and white film for the longest time. Yeah, same because I was too busy working on the festival, I didn't get to watch the print or the video copy that was shown uh, back then. So I have, before this, only experienced it in exactly that way, you know, off of a VHS that um, played some havoc on some of the subtitles. So uh, this is this was a totally beautiful experience. And um, uh, we might talk about it later, but I, I actually really love the notes about the restoration and plans for more that uh, is is at the end uh, of the end credits of, of this copy. Yeah, I can't wait for that. And yeah, we'll definitely talk a little bit more about the rest of VNA's filmography. But before we even start to talk about Can Dialectics Break Bricks, I just want to talk a little bit about the origins of this and the situation is uh, two weeks ago, uh, I talked about Fernando Arabal and the panic movement and how that split from the surrealists, the panic movement. You know, Hodorowski is one to say, I didn't really like what Breton was doing. He was kind of lording over everybody and he didn't like rock and roll. He didn't like sci-fi. He was just had a stick up his ass. So we created the panic movement. And I think the situation is came. Well, actually, the Letras first came uh, uh, splintered away from the Surrealists, and then the Situationists kind of splintered away from them. And there's a lot of history with that. And then also, this being France, one of the means of getting the message out for the Letras and the Situationists was film and the film theory and actually taking films and doing what they would call detournement, which is to uh, the first part of that is detour, so to take something and put it on a detour and make it do something else. So this film is one example of taking a movie and making it do something else. One of the things that I like about it, and this goes into, and I don't know if you can put this up on the um, show page for this, was the documentary, and it was in three small bits that you shared with us. I think it's probably about a half hour in total that goes into a lot of stuff about the situation. So if you don't know anything about them, and one of the things that they were really big on, which I 
have done in my own creative work is collage. So I think in some way film in this way kind of works in the same manner that they would do that or they would take old comic books and strip the panels out and take the dialogue out and put new dialogue in. So in some way there's already sort of a precedent within their own work before they even start messing around with film. Can Dialectics Break Bricks comes out in 73, and by that time, the Situationist had already dissolved. This is post-Situationist, and it's also the same year that Guy Debord puts out one of his many films, which was actually Society of the Spectacle. Um, and it's an interesting way that he takes his book and adapts it for the big screen, <laughs> makes a, a weird documentary out of his own book, and the text playing against the images, and of course, these are all detorn images. These are all stolen images. So we've it's really interesting to watch the two films back to back and see where VNA is kind of the prankster and Guy Debord seems so serious about his message. There's also a really interesting collision there between their methodologies, because in one way, what VNA is doing is deceptively simpler in that he's using just one film and he's not cutting it up and changing it, you know, for his own purposes, the way that DeBoer does. But on the other hand, the sort of process of writing and using the available narrative here is actually immensely complicated. Amazing to me that this is something that he pulled off actually in just a couple of days, because I have to say on this watching, uh, maybe it was because it was all clearer, you know, et cetera. I was actually quite impressed with the way that the narrative, what we're seeing on screen really did sustain with the conversations that are going on. It isn't just like a, a kind of gag to put these uh, sort of philosophical arguments in their mouths. It is a genuine narrative and character-oriented experience all the way through. And so quite complicated in its way, even though it might seem to be a simpler gag than Debord using all these different films very beautifully at times in, uh, in his own uh, adaptation of his book, uh, Society of the Spectacle. I was going to say on that, that was part of my comment when I, when we opened about watching it for the second time and, and appreciating it more. And that was because the first version that I watched was the one that Mike shared with me that was the old one, as you were talking about, that was, that was rather beat up. And then watching the new one with the new subtitles cleaned up. It's much nicer, but also kind of getting through it the first time. If you don't know what you're going in for, it can be a challenge because one of the things is, first off, to give you a bit of a preface at the beginning in terms of this is a denatured film and, well, what does that mean? And we're doing this and it's, you know, there's these slogans and various things that connect itself. But the first time you watch it through, I mean, it is so dense with reference, half of which I, I don't get. You know, like, I don't know certain names. Um, there's certain historical dates in there that I think I understand. So, I mean, sort of an annotated version of this would be great because then you could go through and go, right, okay, get all this. But I think if you were someone who was in that period when this was made, and obviously this film is not a conversion piece in a sly sense. What I mean is, is that it's not a film that's made just for the general audience to come in and go, Oh my God, my, my the, the scales have fallen from my eyes and I'm, I'm now, uh, I'm now in with them. This is definitely something that was created for those. I, I mean, I get the sense that it was originally created for those who were in that movement 
for that movement to a certain extent, because I don't necessarily know how sort of far uh, a lot of people would would have an understanding of some of this stuff, I think, in terms of a mainstream uh, French audience circa 1972, 73. Almost 50 years from when this first came out, I have very little historical knowledge, and I completely agree. You know the those books that take uh, Alan Moore's The Watchmen and go through every single panel and tell you all of the different things that are going on in each panel? I would love one of those for Can Dialectics Break Bricks because there are so many references where I'm just like, okay, what is this? what what happened in Barcelona in this year? What happened <laughs> in in Bud- okay Budapest '56? I kind of get that, but what happened in Barcelona '37? Who is this? name what is this and there are times where it plays with that too there's one karate fight that they have where it's like to understand what's happening here you need to see this book from pages 201 to 205 or something okay that is completely taking the piss out of all of this stuff it's like the movie knows that it's self-serious even though it's trying to make something of a serious point but also knows that it's funny. I don't know if that all comes together, but he manages to balance all of those things at one time. There's a certain level in here of, and I don't know if it's exactly the, the correct reference, but it is aware of itself. <laughs> and um, I was going to say meta, but I'm not sure if that's the correct term, but it's definitely aware of itself. It knows it's a film and it makes certain reference to itself as a film in which there's, there's certain lines that I wrote down that I, that I really liked. Uh, for example, at the end, there's one that the lead character that's left goes, you know, they're just sick of dubbing it. So they're all acting like they're dead. And it's like after the big fight and, you know, it's just this battlefield of, you know, dead people. So there's, and it's like, I don't have enough money for cab fare or something like that. So there's this, or, you know, don't talk like that. There's cops in the audience, you know, right. and things that, like that. That was so. my favorite. Don't talk like that. There are cops in the audience. Uh, at this point, they've already argued everything out so much. So I, I just find it funny that it knows what it is and it's willing to play with that. It's not it's not taking this distance where it's like we're a film. What are you talking about? Like let's come in and let's, you know, uh suspend our disbelief and get into the story and it's like, no. <laughs> we're gonna have fun with this. Well, even the line that you used uh, at the beginning talking about he looks like a jerk, but that's not his fault. It's the producers. I mean, that's one of the first things that we have in these subtitles or, or dubbed and subtitles in this version. And I should say, too, that there are many versions of this that when this was first done, VNA used a subtitle track and it was subtitled over the uh, Hong Kong film that this was originally of. And then other people took the film and then redubbed it. And I have to say that the dubbing is really done very well. It actually matches up to the mouths quite a bit. And they use a voiceover at times, actually a couple voiceovers, and that will tie some things together. But I'm surprised that it isn't just constant voiceover whenever somebody isn't speaking. They leave enough room in between things that, so that you're able to still follow the story and digest things. I'm going to mention that that is truly an art uh, in itself. And it was something that I noticed the way that they that they matched. I actually in another life have had some experience doing voices for anime in the United States. 
there is really some great uh, intense attention on both the part of the the writer and then on the part of the performer to kind of match the rhythms right so that uh, the audience isn't pushed out of it by the the change of language. As I was taking notes and I the, watching uh, both versions, especially after we were able to get the subtitled version of the original film, certain aspects of the original film allow it to work. Um, it seems to me like this movie was deliberately chosen and there's certain things that are in the plot, which when I first tried to watch it without the subtitles, cause it didn't have a subtitle version, I was a little lost. I mean, I understood that there was sort of this rival thing going on. And I remember in our email to you, Mike, you said something like, yeah, my Chinese knowledge is working a little bit here. I can kind of tell there's something going on with Koreans and Japanese, but I'm not exactly sure <laughs> what's going on with the film. So I, I think if we talk a little bit about the plot of Crush a little bit, then that can help people to understand what the plot of dialectics is and kind of how they use that structure to bring in these ideas and play these rivals against each other. People are very familiar with the structure of this movie if they've ever seen Bruce Lee's Fist of Fury, a.k.a. The Chinese Connection, which is a lot of the same ideas, this whole idea of a, in this case, it's a Korean uh, Taekwondo school, and there are invaders. It's, this is uh, when Japan has taken over Korea for a while, and then we have a, a Chinese hero come in, and he basically liberates or tries to liberate the South Koreans from the Japanese. And that is very similar to the whole idea of the schools that we have. And, you know, you killed my teacher. Why, 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 why? Why did you kill my teacher? Why did you kill my teacher? Inside of Fist of Fury, but, you know, set here in a much more rural setting than we had when it comes to Fist of Fury, which I think is pretty urban. It's been a while since I've seen it. I'm I'm desperately waiting for that Criterion box set to get released. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, rubbing my hands together like a greedy little pig. Uh, <laughs> greedy little capitalist pig. Yeah, a greedy little capitalist pig, yes. Well, the thing, the, it's funny that you bring up Bruce Lee because although this isn't a Lee knockoff, meaning that you have someone named L.I. or Johnny Lee or the clones of Bruce Lee. Yeah. There, I definitely had this feel in the beginning where he's doing all the poses and, you know, fight stuff in, in the credits that it's like, if you like Bruce Lee, you're in the theater for this. Like, it seems like they're playing on, which at this time when this was made, he was rather popular. Fist of Fury had come out, I think the same year as this. So it was uh, of Crush, I sh should say, because I think Crush comes out in 72, if memory serves. And then the detournament happens in 73. I'm not sure what how much time it passed through between Fist of Fury coming out and Crush coming out, but it definitely feels like the producers might have seen Fist of Fury and said, oh, I have an idea for a movie. <laughs> so, yeah, our main character is not a knockoff of Bruce Lee, like you said. But, yeah, he definitely and, – and that that opening montage of him, yeah, with the poses and stuff. Though he – well, he does get shirtless towards the end. But for the most part, he's wearing a very – inconvenient costume of this long red coat with this scarf around his neck. And I would think, man, that would really 
you know, inhibit my movement if I were wearing something like that. But instead, he's able to jump around. He jumps from scene to scene like he's the Incredible Hulk. It's pretty amazing. The, the thing that it really sets up, it really sets up this dichotomy between the, uh, the the Koreans who are under the occupation. So you've got those who are in the fight school. You've got uh, a woman and her little brother. And then there's, as you said, the, the, the Bruce Lee knockoff character who's the liberator. And then you have basically the, the Japanese occupiers. Kind of the way to figure it out is typically they kind of move in gangs, you know, you, except for the, the hero. And, and I think that that kind of structure of that, like looking at it, really opens it up so that when they do the denatured version of this, when they do this dubbing and everything, you know, the battle lines are kind of already there. Like there's this group and there's this group, and then we can kind of play the class struggle. So that's what I was thinking is it's very obvious that there's already political issues in this film, although they're not going to sit there and debate the finer points of Japanese occupation of Korea in here during that period. But I just thought that that was interesting that they chose this film that already had those kind of political elements in some way. Because then how difficult is it to then recast the Japanese as the bureaucrats and recast the Koreans as the proletariat? And then we have the dialectician who is Piao Pai come in here. And again, I said the long red coat. I mean, how much more of a communist symbol can you get than now suddenly his long red coat means something else and him as the dialectician being able to liberate them through his arguments and <laughs> through all of these references that they have. And I love that the Korean school is, you know, practicing karate, but also practicing their dialectics at the same time. Well, it's an interesting thing because the choice of, of a film to detourn is on the one hand, you know, it's not casual at all. And on the other, you know, especially by uh, contemporary standards, can be taken as uh, as somewhat problematic as cultural appropriation using to this purpose. But one of the things that, that strikes me um, about uh, the, the genre is uh, precisely this way in which education uh, is foregrounded within the plots. You know, it's the education in fighting methods uh, as well as the education in dialectics. And the, there are a number of lines about how, oh, you've actually read a lot or we have to keep them from reading that definitely go very much more directly, I think, to the kinds of points and make the kind of plot uh, work for the detournement better than, for instance, you know, like an American thriller of, of the time. There's a way in which this particular uh, genre expression works very, very well. And then, yeah, you get uh, elements like the, uh, the the red costume, which at one point is, um, you know, near near the end. It's, oh, now it's the battle of the red and the white. How much more of a perfect film could he have chosen than something like this? He's able to take what's existing and twist it in such a great way that it just feels so natural, which is so strange that he, you can take a karate film and then naturally turn it into what this is. And, and then you can recast characters like the little boy and just his... <laughs> his lascivious remarks to the female character and how he keeps going back to Desaad. In the original film, they're brother and sister, but in, in the redone film, he's just a pervert and constantly trying to get with this. We don't know because presumably haven't seen the original film, but if you're watching this version, he's trying to get with his sister. So I, 
<laughs> it's kind of funny. One of the reasons why it's funny is in part because of, uh, you know, what's being pulled out of these performances. There is something about the performances between them that's not exactly lascivious, but they have these expressions on their faces during these bits of detour dialogue that definitely make room for that material and might, in fact, have inspired it. There's also a thing, two levels of the of the title. So obviously, it's referencing the moves that you see, the Taekwondo moves that they're breaking the bricks and the boards and all of that stuff. But I mean, just the use of the term dialectic, which unless you've had a philosophy course, you definitely wouldn't know what dialectical materialism is unless you've studied Marx and Engel. But just the term dialectics is about trying to find the truth in two different argument points, but also the use of the term dialectic, which of course is a version of the term dialogue. So again, recasting the dialogue over a film. So it's... You know, there's kind of multiple levels in the use of that word, too. Can you break bricks with your words, basically? And that interesting, uh, you know, that the constant problem of uh, now we're really going to sound like academics, but the, the constant problem of praxis, like how does the intellectual activity become a real world activity and not just stay trapped in a in a classroom or in a midnight dialogue? Where is the action to this? And do you need to take the action with the fists and the swords and all this? And I do have to say that with the Japanese being the bureaucrats in this, they are always at an advantage over the proletariat because they have swords. And then you have all these people trying to fight battles against all of these swordsmen with just their hands. And they almost always lose because they're, I mean, they're literally getting their arms chopped off in this movie. And it's just the bureaucrats have the means of production. You know, they're the ones that have the, the tools and have the sword. And then I love when at one point our hero takes away one of the swords and just says, go put away your phallic symbol. The other thing that I love about that, too, is there's a guy who gets uh, hit with the sword and, and he says to him, but you said you were going to use the dull edge. And he just laughs at him and goes, oh, really? You know, you're going to trust me like that? Come on. You know, so there's a couple of things in here that kind of remind me of the current state of affairs in which we find ourselves in that looking at. A group that obviously has power and the means to bring down violence on people. There's also a line in here which obviously calls back to almost, sadly, over 50 years ago, where he asks the young boy for the password, and he says, Watts, and let it burn, you know, just like Watts. So, I mean, there's this connection between what they're fighting for and then also the connection to the uprisings in the cities in the 60s during the civil rights movement, which, to be honest, we're kind of seeing the second wave of that right now. Absolutely. And there's also another, uh, you know, great moment that, that stuck out to me here with the with the swords uh, to go back to that, where, you know, our hero finds himself surrounded by swords and one of the villains uh, says to him, oh, uh, now tell me that our power is an illusion. He overcomes the swords, but it's like one of those, it, it is one of those great moments of, of saying, yeah, there's a lot of illusion at play within the play of power. You know, ultimately those swords are real and it requires some kind of real action to overcome them. And uh, that definitely then, uh, you know, relates, um, uh, I think, exactly to that idea of the password being 
uh, being Watts. And uh, yeah, as uh, Mike and I were talking about when I first got on on Skype, this is feeling awfully contemporary uh, to watch this right now. So this may have been, you know, seven years in the making, but I feel like it's not a moment too soon or a moment too late. Just wait, you know, this will come out in approximately 10 days. I think by then everything will be absolutely fine with the state of the world. So it'll all be history. It'll all be nice uh, rearview mirror kind of stuff. And and this will have receded back into its proper place as a quaint artifact of another time. The bureaucrats will uh, take care of it, as they always do. I love when they're trying to get our hero on their side. The bureaucrats are trying to bring him in, and <laughs> they say, if you uh, do this for me, I'll make you a foreman. <laughs> but uh, I, I also love when they tempt him with, uh, you'll have cash, you'll have the prettiest young boys, you'll have all the opium that you could smoke, and just all of this, like, trying to bring him in to their fold and stuff. These are fucking funny lines in this movie that you wouldn't expect to be as funny because yeah we are talking about like you know spare no one just like budapest and these kind of things where it's like oh shit yeah there's some real hardcore stuff going on in here but then you also have hilarious lines like that and also one thing that i was really happy about i mean it, it feels like there are so many things that we talk about on the podcast that we're all kind of coming together in this movie there's even mention of wilhelm reich so we have the whole wr mysteries of the organism so if you want to know more about wilhelm reich you know here's a footnote go and check out that episode because we have one of our characters here saying that she has been studying his his writing yeah, there was also a, a line in there that I liked, you know, with the foreman line and things like that, obviously talking about work. There's one where it's like, oh, do you want to talk to your union? I'm sure they'll help you. And they all kind of laugh. Now, as someone who has been a member of several unions, I have run into that where I've got a problem and I go to the union and not much help. So <laughs> it's, it's sad, but it's true. I don't know if this tangent might interest you guys, but like one of the things that, that struck me in watching this again was a, a sort of interesting historical problem, you know, not just in the sense that this feels up to date, you know, as a work that, that fits our moment right now, but that on the Internet, we've now had a good 20 years of uh, profusion of uh, works that to differing degrees detourn sources. And there's there's some better works that go that way. And there's uh, lots of frivolous kinds of things where you wouldn't quite want to call it to turn up, but uh, it is definitely taking existing cultural products and changing it. And, you know, on the one hand, sure, you might have the usual uh, kind of fan service uh, reworking of, uh, of some Marvel product that just holds it up as, you know, the only thing you should pay attention to. And that would be the very much the opposite of Detournement while using some of the same methodologies. But, you know, on the other hand, those like Hitler screaming at everybody in the bunker videos uh, that there was a vast profusion of uh, several years ago, some of those were actually quite good and really, really funny. And then on another level, I think of, uh, um, you know, an earlier example, like uh, Brad Neely's Wizard People, Dear Reader, I, I think is a kind of detournement, but it's less political than it is emotional, you know, using uh, the first Harry Potter movie as a jumping off place for uncovering all manner of, uh, you know, psychological and emotional stuff that could be buried, you know, with, within that text. So we've seen a ton of this. And so it, it, that makes me raise the question, well, uh, what what does this kind of methodology do? What does this mean? And, you know, to a very serious degree, 
is this kind of methodology, does dialectics break bricks? Is it in danger of simply being consumed by the spectacle and our participation in the spectacle through the Internet, which, um, you know, couldn't have been quite imagined by uh, Deborah at the time. But if you read the work, uh, so much of it sounds like it's describing how we live on the Internet. No, I'm a, a huge, I don't know, fan is the right word. I am always interested in these products where you take an existing work and detourn it for something else. Um, I actually wrote a book a few years ago about a comedy group called Man Movies in the LA Connection. And there was a TV show back in, I want to say it was 86, where they would take existing films, cut them down to about eh, 20 minutes or so, and then redub the entire thing. And they were very, very careful when it came to matching the lips and then recasting everything. There were just, oh, they were so good. I mean, I'm surprised that we haven't already brought up things like uh, What's New Tiger Lily, which actually happened a little bit before this, which was actually two films that Alan cut together in order to uh, make that. So if people tell you it's this movie, it's actually two movies that he cut together. And then there's one movie which ironically enough, is being shown, I think, this month in Madrid, which hasn't been shown for years and years, which is a 1940 film called A Mustache for Two, which I found out when I was doing research for the Mad Movies book as being one of the earliest versions of a detournement or just a basically a mock dub, uh, we can call it, of taking a, in that case, it was a German movie and adding Spanish subtitles to it and making it a joke because of the Spanish subtitles, rewriting the entire plot with the Spanish subtitles. So I have yet to see that, but I actually have an, a copy coming on the way because now it's finally available again after all of these years. So I can't wait to see that and then try to beg someone to translate the Spanish for me. It definitely goes along with surrealist, you know, later uh, kind of caught up practices and very different uh, kind of detournement, but I think fits in, into the, that, that history would be like Joseph Cornell's uh, Rose Hobart, that kind of repurposing. And I'm glad that you brought up cut-ups because when last time I talked with uh, Craig Baldwin, he was actually working on, and I know it takes him years and years to do this because of his methodology, because it's just so intense. Uh, he was putting together a movie that is comparing, contrasting, cutting together, let's say, Guy Debord and William S. Burroughs, because they were doing these kind of similar things in different countries, but ultimately very similar results. That whole connection, as we were talking about, um, meme culture on the internet, short videos, even just taking the audio and stripping it out of one place and then, play, and then pasting that audio over a different, uh, video source or acting out that audio. Like there's a, there's a comedian I've seen on YouTube that's taken pieces of Donald Trump's speeches and then she'll basically lip sync them. And it completely denatures them and, and does kind of commentary on top of it. So it's it, it's fascinating that a lot of these ideas that may have started in these art movements are now just basically considered part of everyday commentary in the world. It's not that odd anymore. 
to see this kind of stuff. So I, I think that the film can be accessible in that way. Although, like I said, some people might just kind of shut it off because they're not understanding the political or the references. And they think, I don't know if I can keep watching this because I have no idea what the hell they're talking about at times. That raises like one of the questions about the Situationist project. Even this, which is a good bit more lighthearted, is sort of prey to a kind of academicism that enters into the dialectic. The way that this discourse is carried out is highly specialized. And that actually is, you know, as we mentioned before, that's part of the plot here, that kind of fight methodology turned into dialectical specialization um, and training is is a very much a part of this. Um, and that also makes me think of, uh, of you know, a connection in the present tense to, to um, meme work that I think is, is very similar in spirit to this, which is uh, Eric Hatch's memes on Twitter and on Instagram, the way that he takes contemporary art movies, mixes them together with each other and mixes them with, you know, common phrases and joke structures that are used on the internet to quite often make uh, some pretty intense and unfiltered political points. There are times where I get really depressed about my internet addiction, and I, I think I'm still mostly depressed about my my own internet addiction. But uh, Eric Hatch is one of those bright spots where I go, okay, well, his his work is a reason to keep paying attention, and I think he uses uses meme culture really, really well. I mean, I I'll, I'll say that you know, for my own part, there's a lot of meme culture that I just have no patience for whatsoever. I find it really, really interesting the way that he detourns detournement itself and detourns uh meme culture uh in the present tense as well as a tradition of art cinema that in in the moment is is like at once celebrated but i think also needs the piss taken out of it at regular intervals you can enjoy the work and and respect it but let's not let uh you know parasite boss us around too much we keep talking about this balance of humor and commentary and, you know, really takes us to satire, which is one of the most powerful tools that we have in our toolbox, which unfortunately just seems lost today. I mean, people keep posting satire is dead. When you see some of the things that Donald Trump Jr. might do or say there's no – he has no idea that he's – Doing this, you know, like so often speaking of memes, so often I will see something that somebody says and I just use the Spider-Man pointing at himself meme because it's just like you are describing yourself. You don't seem to realize that. And it just I feel like we're having satire ripped away from us sometimes just because we are in such a ridiculous situation. So there are times where it's just like, okay, I'll see something like uh, bad lip reading or uh, the the oral knots and the way that they recast bait in the the last Batman movie and it's just like okay you know that we still are able to laugh at things being detourned in this way but satire feels like it's an endangered species some days the first person who said that to me and it was I believe about eight years ago on this show you may be able to actually find the piece of tape of him talking about this was when we had Bob Downey on and we were talking about Putney Swope and he was referencing Mitt Romney's run for president in 2012. And he's like, I don't even know if I could do satire now. Mr. Romney is like beyond satire. Now, I think, I, I don't even know if we could even reach a point of beyond satire. I think that, <laughs> I don't even know if that's possible. 
Well, what we're living through feels like especially bad satire. Like it would be uh, dismissible as, you know, satire that's too fish in a barrel and too obvious. The Onion recently, uh, I, I have felt has been particularly good, but it's been particularly good by simply writing headlines that feel more honest or truthful rather than being a fictional exaggeration, which used to be their style. And that particular fiction, fictional exaggeration was, uh, of course, you know, really funny and made them very popular. Uh, but now, quite honest, uh, honestly, it, it, it feels like their way of writing a headline is to take an existing uh, Washington Post or, uh, or New York Times headline and simply put it in plainer terms. There was one that I really liked recently, and it was in reference to all of the corporations that were putting out, we stand with black lives or we stand with the protesters statements. And it was one for um, Aunt Annie's, the pretzel stand at most malls. And how that, you know, we will shoot looters on site and, you know, and all of this. And it was really dark. And like friends of mine were like, holy shit, dude. Like, I can't believe you put that up. And I'm like, I think it's hilarious. As a matter of fact, I had to go back. It, it reminded me of talking about 50 years earlier, Michael O'Donohue's bit in National Lampoon, where it was like the Vietnamese baby book that he did about like the Vietnamese baby in the village that got slaughtered by the Americans. And just, it's so dark in its humor that sometimes it feels like the onion is going that way. It's like, we can't, as you said, exaggerate our way into a joke. So we're going to just, we're going to head right into the darkest part of this and make it just, ugh, and just make you sit with it. I guess it's the seriousness of purpose uh, that I come back around to with this movie and, you know, with DeBoer's work as well, rescues what I, what could be a hopeless project of uh, just throwing all your effort against the spectacle into the maw of the spectacle to feed it. There is, you know, as we mentioned before, there are references to some really difficult and unpleasant stuff in the context of, of this particular film. And, you know, the, uh, over the last several days in revisiting, you know, Society of the Spectacle, both, you know, book and movie, and then some of DeBoer's later uh, work, I am really struck by the relevancy of that work to our, our present predicament. And uh, a lot of the warnings that are, uh, that are contained in the work, um, another line that, that really jumps out of this, uh, this movie that's repeated a couple of times, and I almost think of it as the, as the major theme of the film and a, a kind of meta commentary on it is you can't conquer alienation with alienated means. And this, this sense that, that perhaps to turn them all in a way is is a bit of a dead end because you're using some alienated means in order to try to conquer alienation. And that is, uh, that is really interesting and hard and, and actually comes up at, 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 again, back to the way that it works in relationship to the story. That line gets repeated at kind of the most uh, emotionally poignant moment of this particular film between the hero and this uh, this woman who he's become attracted to. And they've had this they've just had this kind of like lovers quarrel and now they're getting together and he's touching her face and then she's going to die later on in the film. I find it like a really, really interesting the, the degree to which Viennet engages with drama and engages with emotion here, even when so much of the project would seem like a, a highly intellectualized kind of game. He can do that. And then later on, the other thing that he keeps bringing up is 
burning the hair from under someone's arms. I have no idea what he's talking about. You can have that very poignant moment and then follow it up with a joke. And it just, it's wonderful. Well, and other lines like, you understand nothing, you dick bite Leninist, we're going to fuck you up. And I, I know that part of that, and this is this is an interesting part of the whole discussion, that could be as much Keith Sanborn as it is VNA, but I'm assuming that Sanborn is uh, responding to the structure of a joke in French and is adapting it into into English. And then that brings up the whole issue of, uh, you know, subtitles and dubbing, which really destroy uh, the sort of auteurist basis of cinema, because it mentions all these uh, auteurs' names at the beginning, that all these works could be detourned. And it made me think about, oh, right, I know this is from a French point of view, but, but uh, for the French... Um, uh, uh, Ingmar Bergman, uh, who's listed there, would uh, would be subtitled, uh, and within those subtitles, you have um, an intervention by someone who is uh, disrupting the kind of auteurist product uh, that's been created, and that's that's a, a a fact of art cinema that we live with. I apologize, guys, that I put together like a 500-page course pack for y'all to read. I think I might have made it through 300 pages because there were some articles that were just way too heady or some that I was like, okay, this makes one reference to detournement, maybe one reference to dialectics, but really is not appropriate for our discussion. But there was one book, which was uh, Tessa Dwyer's Speaking in Subtitles, and her article about this and just about subtitling, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Because you know, you're talking about dubbing and just how you have to change what you're saying in order to fit that lip flap. And when it comes to subtitling, you have to try to take things and condense them down as much as you can. And yeah, I've seen so many different styles of subtitling over the years. I've worked on fan subs over the years and just seeing like uh, one of my favorite things was uh, Zatuichi meets the one-armed boxer where there are Japanese subtitles on the screen that run vertically. And then there are uh, Chinese subtitles, which run horizontally. And then you're trying to match up everything via English subtitles at the same time. It was wild. Or even some of the earliest versions of the Lone Wolf and Cub series that I watched subtitled, uh, which were fantastic subtitles because they would actually have in brackets the definitions of words as they would show them in China, in Japanese and then give you definitions or give you more information about things when there was enough time to do that. But then you're working against the timing of the movie, the timing of the dialogue, and being able to tell who's speaking when. Yeah, there's a huge art to subtitling. And one of my uh, favorite episodes that we did, as a matter of fact, I think it might be on both. I can't remember exactly where the where the larger portion of talking about the subtitles was. It was when we did the two episodes on the films of Fukuzaku, when we did um, Battles Without Honor and Humanity, and then Battle Royal. Linda Hoagland, who was his subtitler, talked about that. We asked her about, you know, how do you do subtitles in English for this film, and what are the considerations, and all of that stuff. So, so that's fascinating listens. I, I just seem to be the guy who's sending people people to other episodes go listen to this one go listen to that one so anyway it's almost like you're posting links on social media for me all right we're going to take a break and play an interview with keith sanborn the man who brought can dialectics break bricks to america and we'll be right back with that after these brief messages A 
Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies? How about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. How did you get to be what you are today? I was in Buffalo in 1978 in graduate school at uh, the Center for Media Studies. It was kind of one of the most amazing places in the world for studying experimental film. Paul Sherritt, Tony Conrad, Hollis Frampton, the Basilkas, all kinds of people were there. It was really like being at the Bauhaus, but without the infrastructure. And during the time I was there, somebody put in my hands a copy of Society of the Spectacle. I was completely blown away by it. As soon as I could, I got a French copy, uh, and I had the old black and red editions version. At a certain point, I realized that the situation is that actually made film. Well, I found out about Deborah's Society of the Spectacle, which I also later translated and did a, a bootleg version of, and his Refutation of All Judgments, which I also did a, a bootleg translation of later when they became available. But I was already studying film, and I had studied English and comparative literature. Before that, this book landed in my hands. That was the beginning of a more than 40-year obsession 
do you see the films that you're making after you read the Society of the Spectacle starting to take on some of their philosophy? I saw in them a parallel to what I was trying to do. I didn't want to compare myself to them, but it wasn't exactly a cause and effect relationship. There's a huge tradition in the United States of working with so-called found footage, like Bruce Conner, for example. That was a tradition that had interested me a lot, and I had already been working in that tradition. But their idea of detournement, I found really interesting because it really spoke to me. I was always looking for kind of experimental film world of the late 70s was very formal. And it was a lot of times form picked the expensive content. And I thought, well, why not have interesting form and interesting content? I've never been hugely interested in Godard. I'm just a couple of movies of his I like, but I really like the sense of plagiarism as an intellectual project that they were putting forward. And this really spoke to me as a way forward. The idea that you could have interesting form and interesting content, or that you could have, let's go further and say, radical form and radical content in a film was really bolstered by their understanding of film. And of course, I never saw the films until much later. It must have been in the 90s when uh, I first saw Society of the Spectacle. I can't remember when I first saw Can Die Like It's Fred Bricks. It was at that the ICA in Boston had this show. They had playing on monitor there, a copy, a black and white, a really bad black and white copy of Condialectic Spike Bricks. And I could not believe what I was hearing coming out of the TV. Interestingly, they were alternating it with What's Up, Tiger Lily? And I'm not sure why that is. Well, there was a myth that was, I don't know who was at the origin of it, but for many years, people thought that VNA and my, myself included had been inspired by What's Up, Tiger Lily. But in fact, he's never seen the film. I saw that film there and I was just completely blown away. I really just couldn't believe it. I had read a bunch of his essays on film in the situation as international, the, the compilation of their different issues of the magazine. And I knew he was somebody who was a thinker about film, but I didn't realize he'd actually made films. They talk about DeBoer having made films. He'd made a couple when he was part of the SI, but actually VNA didn't get started on making films until after he left the SI, which was in, he left in 71 and the first version of Condialectic Spray Bricks was made in 72. The influence is, I guess, sort of just crystallizing that notion of very aggressive appropriation of things, which got easier and easier, of course, as video came about. The age of DVD has made the golden ages of uh, found footage movies. Translating their work, as it became available to me, became an extension of my project. I'd done other translations, but there's something about it, you know, in a way, found footage films, or however you want to say them, using pre-existing material, is very much analogous to the process of translation, where you are taking something which has luminous value, you might say, I don't want to go all Ezra Pound on you there, but something which stands out to you, and then recontextualizing it in such a way, but just bringing it into another context. And in a way, that's what you're doing in translation. You are bringing over into a new linguistic context 
something which has attracted your attention in another language. So the engagement with the Situationists both solidified my interest in politics and film, and it also gave me a very direct engagement with their working practices. I mean, I often, you know, when I'm just uh, engaged in a conversation with anybody, I'll often, some phrase out of can dialectics break bricks will just sort of pop into my mind. But I so interiorize the film. The same goes to a certain extent uh, with the Boer's work, that there's a way in which by translating it and by reading it, it's kind of been internalized and it's been, you know, become part of my thinking. It's not that I haven't been interested in other things as well, but it's definitely strongly colored my thinking about film and about the world uh, ever since I became exposed to it. Tell me about the Situationists and how they came from the Letras and if they came from the Surrealists. Help me with the timeline and what are the differences between the groups? You know, actually, there's a really great book by Stuart Holm. It's called The Assault on Culture, and he has some very good engagement with that, although I don't think he really starts with the Surrealists. I think he starts more with Dada. One way to sort of frame it is what Bohr says, and it's his critique of Dada and surrealism at once. He said the Dada is trying to destroy art without realizing art. And the surrealists tried to realize art without destroying art. It's part of the, what he might call the dialectic of detournement and appropriation. Although that's actually more of another thing. You have these countercurrents against whatever the received culture is. And then with all movements, Surrealists in particular, you know, they, they would never admit that their project had become sort of bankrupt. So it became a little bit more of a, a sort of an orthodoxy. Uh, people have accused uh, Gabor of being a kind of André Breton, who is sort of the, the Pope of the Situationists, as, as sometimes Breton is called the Pope of the Surrealists, but that's kind of an overstatement, and at least the Situationists had a good sense to disband when they, you know, when the project had reached its end. There is a kind of direct relationship between the Letrists and the Situationists in the sense that Gabor, at least, and Gilles Bollemont, who was an early collaborator of DeBoer, were part of the Letrists, then broke off to form their own movement called the Letrists International in the early 50s, and then finally broke with Izu and his sort of cult of personality by the, the early 50s there. So there's an interest in cultural critique. There's an interest in film, in reappropriating uh, pre-existing images. A lot of Yuzu's work is about that. Lemaitre's work is about that. Although they tend to go more for, you know, they're solidly in the camp of art, trying to push that line between art and life, between art as a separate category and art as a form of intervention, gradually making living an art and an all-encompassing one so that everything becomes part of this same project. And that that sounds kind of like, uh, you know, that could go a lot of different ways. It could go into sort of an aestheticism, which they did not choose to do because they're conscious of that, that sort of relationship between art and politics and blurring the line between the two, that not wanting to be specialists of either, but rather to synthesize them in a way which would, in that Hegelian fashion, both 
um, surpass and cancel them, to both synthesize and cancel out each of those categories, because they were very much against professional politicians, whether they be Marche and Siggy in France or Mao in China or, or the Lenin in Russia. They were very much against professional politicians, against bureaucracy, against the cadres. That's a little bit of the connective uh, tissue there. And of course, the letters get their start by trying to out dada dada. They were famous for having interrupted the famous dada poetry reading. I can't remember exactly who it was now that was reading. In a way, it's generational. You have the generation of the, the, the teens in the 20s, the 20s and the 30s, the 40s and the 50s. And then the 60s, the Dadaists are really the teens in early 20s, followed by the realists in the 20s and 30s. Izu starts in right after the war, founds Letrists. They're working even now, but they're younger members. And they, you know, they work in the present day, but their real kind of vital period was in the late 40s, early 50s, early 60s. The Situationists are formed in 57 and last until 72. There is definitely a lineage. For example, the idea of the derive, which is one of the textbook words you hear associated with the situationist, this idea of exploring the mysteries of urban space, it has a lot of echoes of, say, uh, Breton's uh, novel, Nadja, which is about exploring weird, the, the mysteries of Paris, as it were. And there's one called Paris Paisan. Paris Peasant, uh, which is another guy who is loosely associated with the Surrealists, and his book is basically, it's a sort of homage to Paris, but not, you know, it's not talking about the Champs-Élysées and the Eiffel Tower, it's talking more about obscure, weird little shops and uh, houses of prostitution and um, other things. In any case, it's sort of like unofficial urban geography, I guess you could say. I mean, the situationists call it psychogeography, and they talk about the kind of psychological and, of course, sociological effects of the urban milieu on the way people live. So that's definitely part of that, that lineage, is that interest in specifically urban space and its effect upon people, how one lives in it, and how you play within it. There's definitely a a lot of their sense of the idea of play, it comes from Housing's book on a medieval Europe, Homo Luden, meaning man who plays, playing man. That's another ingredient in the situation. Is I don't think it's really ever acknowledged, but it's definitely, you know, one of the background texts of a situation. Is, I think it's written in the 20s or 30s. This idea of space and play and you know, serious play within urban space as opposed to being forced into the mold of taking your assigned place in society, uh, working till you die or retire. I mean, it's that, it's rejection of that outlook, which is the part of, you know, the famous formulation uh, of DeBoer, who is, of course, quote, quoting Rambo, never work. I mean, you can trace this current back to Baudelaire and his idea of the flaneur. You know, the person who kind of just moves through urban space. He treats urban space as a kind of form of experience, I guess you could say. 
How does VNA fit into this? When does he come to the Situationists? I believe he comes to the Situationists in 1961. He had a really interesting way of being introduced to the Situationists. He had a girlfriend. He, he's from Le Havre, which is in the north there, you know, on the English Channel. And it's kind of a working class town. His father was a docker, and he was even an apprentice butcher or apprentice charcutier at one point. And he had a girlfriend who happened to be Michelle Bernstein's half sister. Uh, Michelle Bernstein at the time was married to Guy Debord. This woman, Therese, turned Rene onto the Situationist Journal. And there was an ad in the back which said, are you young, intelligent, and beautiful? If so, apply to us. So he basically followed that advice. He wanted to get out of uh, Le Havre, which he found uh, stultifying. He ended up in Paris. He ended up living, I think, in the same apartment building, which wasn't exactly a glorious apartment building. Uh, as he points out himself, this building where De Boer and Michel Bernstein lived, they didn't have a toilet in their apartment uh, or a bathroom until 1970. So when they moved elsewhere, and I think he was no longer married to Michelle Bernstein at that point. But anyway, it wasn't exactly luxurious living. DeBoer, I believe, was living on, you know, his student scholarship, at least in the early times. And DNA was fascinated by the Situationists and their outlook on things. He'd already had a huge taste in his lycée of Stalinism, and it's uh, he, he found a lot of his instructors to be lovers of both Stalin and Khrushchev, which is kind of ironic, considering Khrushchev was the one who de-Stalinized. But they were sort of lovers of this Russian authoritarianism, which he had an obvious distaste for. And the anarchist bent of the Situationists had a great appeal for him. And he fell in with De Boer and Michel Bernstein. He was their friend for many, many years. And I think he also found a good place within the group because he was one of the best cooks, certainly a better cook than DeBoer or Michel Bernstein, uh, from what I understand. In a way, that's how he fell in with it. At the same time, he came to Paris. You know, he wanted higher education. He got enrolled at what's called the Langsau, the Institut de Langues Orientales, the uh, Institute of Oriental Languages. And almost by chance, as he describes it, he chose Chinese because they seem to have a kind of not overly demanding program uh, that would allow him to maintain the lifestyle that he liked. As he became part of the Situationist group, where he remained until 1971, the year before they disbanded, he was at various times the editor of the journal or part of an editorial collaborative, especially at the end. And he wrote, you know, a lot of important articles on, especially on the relationship between film and media. He had actually wanted to go to the IDEC, which was the the Institute for Higher Cinema Studies, which is where he went at the time that had just opened a few years earlier. To get in there, he would have had to have taken a bunch of literary courses, spent another year at his lycée taking these literary courses, which were a pre-qualification for that, he decided to go another route. 
but he was interested in uh, making films basically since he was a teenager. As part of the SI, he was basically one of the few, along with DeBoer and Donald Nicholson Smith, who were seriously interested in discussing films. The rest tended to be kind of more readerly, literary types that, that didn't see much interest in film. So how does Can Dialectics Break Bricks come about? At one point in his studies, Vinay goes to China, and you had basically two ways to go. You could either go as an instructor of French to Chinese people or as a student of Chinese. He chose the first because he realized that would put him in more contact with everyday Chinese people. He bailed on a job in Peking when they were they wouldn't let him use any current events and he went to uh, Nanking, which was considered the provinces at the time, for a similar kind of assignment, but they would only let him use as a text a French translation of the sayings of Chairman Mao. Needless to say, these were not what he signed up for, and he quickly left that. After that, he came back to France for a while. In 1971, shortly after leaving the Situationists, he was traveling to Hong Kong, and he dropped in on his old instructor, who basically founded the Longs, oh, a guy named Jacques Pampano, who opened his apartment to all his old students. And he introduced them to a lot of people in Hong Kong. At this point, Dile is totally fluid in uh, Mandarin, and I don't know if he speaks Cantonese as well, but anyway, on that trip, he got interested in classical Chinese film, which nobody was preserving, and also in Hong Kong action films. He found The Crush. It has another title in Chinese, which is something like Tonkus in Taekwondo versus the Japanese. That's the explanation of the original title. Anyway, he found this film, and he realized it would be perfect for detouring, and because it has this, the Japanese as these occupying force, which are a perfect model for bureaucrats. And he thought, oh, this is the film that I can make my project out of that he'd been wanting to do for a long time. So basically, what happens is he becomes a broker for Yangtze Films, uh, which is this film company. If you see it on that new version, you'll see their logo. And he brokered their films in France to uh, this place called Télé Mondial. The Crush was one of those films which he brokered. Although he never got any money for it, he was allowed by the company to make a print of the film and uh, to add his own subtitles, which they then distributed. They subsequently created this other version, which is the version that we know, which was actually done by this guy named Charles Cohen, who was a dubbing expert, along with this group from there was a kind of avant-garde theater troupe known as Le Café de la Gare, uh, which is kind of like a, I guess a loose equivalent would be sort of like the Wooster Group or something, or the Steppenwolf Theater Group in Chicago. They all did the dubbing for this. And one of them actually became incredibly famous. He became like one of the major people to dub films in France. Uh, he does a lot of Star Wars voices and a lot of other people. The crush came about as VNA. Uh, being a broker for Hong Kong action movies to Tele Mondial in France. How long after he did the subtitled version did the dubbed version come about? 
I think about a year, because he did his version in 1972, as he says, and the in the other version, it declares its date of creation as 1973. They both did incredible box office for Tele Mondial, uh, but Guinea never saw any money. He was just excited at the prospect of getting film done. What kind of audience does Dialectics actually have over there? There were essentially three versions of the film. The original version, probably with either a French dub soundtrack or subtitles, which played in the suburbs, uh, Les Banlieues, uh, mostly to a North African immigrant audience. The Inez subtitled version and the dub version uh, played in the Latin Quarter, Saint-Germain. That was basically his audience. The results were incredible. They played for months to packed houses. One of the things that you need to put in perspective about this is that, you know, if you think of kind of avant-garde filmmaking in the United States, we think for the most part, well, we think video now, but at the time that I was, you know, when that term experimental film was being used, it was all 16 millimeter. This was not. There was very little culture of 16 millimeter in France. It was all 35. Isidore Zou made his films in 35. Le Maître, Gilles Lallemand, his film, The Anticoncept, and all the Boers films were made in 35, with the possible exception of his very first film, which was actually made in 16. These guys are, have essentially no money at all, and the opportunity to make a 35 millimeter film was just not to be passed up. Also, he was learning a skill, which was subtitling and how it was done at the time. So that was the payback for DNA on this one. Did I read right that he did this whole subtitling, the resubtitling with his message in just a really short amount of time? And he has repeated often to me, he did it in two afternoons. I happened today to have just looked at his first version of this film, which is not available publicly at the moment. Hopefully it will be. The dub version definitely relies on it, but that whole big sequence at the end where the big battle is happening and there's all those voiceovers, that doesn't exist in DNA subtitled version. There's nothing there. So you can kind of see how it was possible. If you subtract that from the equation, then you can see how it might have been possible to do it in two afternoons. Also, I mean, DNA was, had been the editor of a magazine and he had had a real, as he put it, he'd really gotten the bug for fine typography from DeBoer. He had produced books himself. So for all I know, I believe what he says when he did it in two afternoons. Now that doesn't mean the whole process took two afternoons, but he probably wrote it and spotted the subtitles in two afternoons. The interesting thing that I learned about this is that at the time, we talk about burnt-in subtitles. These are literally burnt-in. They actually made type that corresponded to the proper size of a 35-millimeter frame, and they were actually burnt into the film with acid. They would take a print, and which had been spotted. In other words, you do a footage count, and you say, okay, this title starts here, and it ends there. And they would go through and actually with a some kind of acid, literally burn the emulsion, burn these titles into the emulsion. I always thought that was kind of a metaphor. I thought it burned in as in dodging and burning photographically. But 
it actually doesn't make a lot of sense with negative positive process. That's actually, you'd have to do it with an optical printer. Later on, they did a laser version of this. I don't know how this was done after that, but at the time this was done in the 70s in France, this is how you do it. He said he, he actually really regretted having it during the course of having to move once that he just threw away those little blocks of type that were used to burn in subtitles. But um, You said that he had had this idea of detouring a film before he actually had the chance to see the crush. And I'm curious where that came from, if you know, and how long he had been sitting on this idea. Exactly when that happened, it's hard to say. But certainly, if you look at his writings in the Situation Internationalist Journal, he talks about, this is this is actually claimed later on, this must be the 70s, but he does say at one point, in the past, we've relied on literary methods of intervention, and now a situation as to us be as capable of making a film as he or she is of writing a book. So I think he had this idea pretty early on. I don't know exactly when it developed. I imagine fairly early on in the process, because this process, the, the idea of detournement actually predates the Situationists. Uh, the first text on it was written by De Boer and Volmont in, I don't know, maybe 1950 or 1951. So it's actually before the Situationists, or 52 maybe, before the Situationists even existed, this idea of detournement was there. And if you look at the journal, there is, you know, there are a lot of Etern comics, photographs that are recaptioned. Dunay also has a hand in theorizing this. There's an essay he wrote called The New Methods Against Politics and Art, where he talks about Etern comics, Etern photographs, Etern photo novels, films, radio, and he formulates that probably even in the early 60s, this idea was floating around in his head. And he was certainly interested in film before that. By 71, the idea was well planted in his mind that he wanted to do this. And the only film that he'd ever seen of this sort, he never saw the Lettrist films. He saw them later on recently, and he said with, with interest. But the only film that he ever saw that was sort of practical detournement was in in around 1971, but around the end of the time when he was with the Situationist, he saw a screening of Critique of Separation by Guy Debord, which is about a, I can't remember, 20, 30, 40-minute film. It was pretty rare that Debord's films would get screened anywhere at that point. Later on, there was the Théâtre uh, Contre-Scope that was uh, subsidized by Charles de but at the time, it was extremely rare. These guys were really poor. <laughs> they really didn't have a lot. Of it would be, you know, uh, Asper Yorn uh, would maybe sell a painting or give them a painting, and that's how they'd put out the journal. The idea of access to a 35-millimeter screening room was a pretty exotic proposition. How long after Dialectics comes about does um, The Girls of Camaray happen? I suspect it was fairly soon after. I know he had said that on the success of that, there's a character in there, you might remember, Sugimoto Miki, uh, this woman. He got really obsessed with her 
And he started brokering films from Japan as well as from China. And he bought up all of her films so that he could bring them to France. And he bought the rights to that film and then shot a couple of porno inserts. And the rest is history. He used basically the same technique. But the difference is, in this case, he owned the rights on that one, and he distributed it himself. So he uh, saw some of the profits from that one. I was I was curious where the idea of the porno inserts came from, who he actually got to use for that. I like that he's actually turning it into then a whole treatise about censorship. Censorship was a huge deal at the time. There were a couple of projects which I think you were interested in that, uh, you know, how the eggplant was stuffed and a cask has no fly. Those films were never made. They were kind of proposed. Posters were even made as a kind of way of gathering interest. But they were told by the censorship people that there were those, those titles and the content or the, basically the producers figured out you could not show those films in, in France because in France at the time, well, you might even have to do it now. You had to get what was called a visa de censure. You had to pass a censorship board. For example, I don't know if you've ever seen Gilles Momond's The Anti-Concept. It's a super abstract film. It's basically, it's a white circle alternate that kind of flickers in various rhythms with a voiceover track. And it was projected on a weather balloon. It was kind of a late lettuce project. That did not pass censorship. So you can imagine how strong it was. I remember Brian Geisen talking about this time period, and earlier he said, the effect of censorship is that you don't even think of the projects because you know they can't possibly be published. Those two films were actually never made. But that was definitely testing the limits of, of censorship there. And it was a huge success. It was huge, huge success, that film. It played for three months in the same theater and basically single-handedly saved that theater. Uh, it was about to go out of business. It was probably one reason why they'd agree to run it. And it was just a huge success, and it ran for at least three months in that same theater. But he didn't have trouble with the authorities, with it having the hardcore inserts in it? Apparently not. He never spoke of having any problems with it. That must have been right at the time when you could do things like that. It certainly pushes it. It's also part of the function of those porno inserts, by the way, was to act as a promotion for a book that he was responsible for publishing uh, with 1018. You might notice that under the woman's ass, there is this book that says, It's kind of a double entendre of either ass revolution in the People's Republic of China, or you get taken as the asshole revolution, in other words, a revolution by assholes in communist China. And it basically putting it by that hardcore insert was the way of advertising the book, which was a collection of writings by the Red Guard, which was meant as the French called it Sotisier, which means a collection of stupidity. It goes back at least to Flaubert, who read this book called Bouval and Pécuchet, and at the end of it, he has what he calls a, a dictionary of received ideas. And in it, he put basically all the literary and journalistic cliches of his time and political ones. And so in the spirit of that, 
they collected and translated a bunch of these things of the Red Guard. And it was meant as an unmasking of the, of the Red Guard by simply repeating what they said, which is basically the same way that Mao by Mao functions, where you get a critique of Mao with the Mao's own, in Mao's own words. Which came first, Mao by Mao or Peking Duck Soup? It's my impression that Mao by Mao came first. They're both listed as 1977, but I'm almost certain that Mao by Mao came first because on the strength of that, which was sold to TV, it basically showed on TV on the, on, uh, the day of Mao's death. It was already a kind of known and sort of literary and, um, boho circles, but this really put in mainstream. And in fact, the financial success of the girls of Camaray is what allowed him to make Mao by Mao. He got the two producers, saw the film, and they liked it, and he had these more serious aspirations. My guess if it's in the way of things, the way these usually work, first they finance the short, and then they finance the feature-length project. But I, I'm not sure about that. I'd, ha- I'd have to check with him to be totally sure. But I, my intuition is that it's Mao by Mao, and then she won't go a.k.a. Picking Duck Soup. There's a whole section of uh, Mao by Mao in Shinwanko. He might have been working on both projects simultaneously, and there's a whole section of Shinwanko, which is Mao by himself. And in fact, I don't know if you would look at those trailers of Shinwanko, but that's basically the title section of Shinwanko that he simply excerpted and used as a trailer. And it works pretty well as a trailer. In a way, you can see the influence of Debor there, where in Debor's film, he incorporates these either trailers or the rhetoric of a trailer, or else I think it's Critique of Separation, where he has this title, which reads, The Greatest Anti-Film of All Time. And then, of course, they use the trailers, both in the film, at, well, they use this, this kind of tra- language of trailers, both in the film and for the films. I don't know if he got that idea from DeBoer or he just came up with it himself, but definitely he recycled or else expanded out on Now by Now within Shinwanko. Shinwanko is, is such a different animal. Is that because he was working with other people as, as opposed to taking one whole film and detouring it? it? It is that that multiple sources, as you're talking about, that, that Guy DeBoer was doing. Those other two films are a lot more DeBoer-like than the first two films are. He's using, he is detouring the footage in the sense that he's using this footage, which is, you know, meant to celebrate the great Chinese revolution to critique it. And he's doing that with a voiceover. The kind of voiceover he uses is much more sarcastic. I mean, in Mao by Mao, there's a kind of tone to it. You can tell it in Jack Belden's voice there. He's given it a, a folksy, but a very ironic delivery. Gabor never does that. He's always deadpan when, in his delivery. Here, in the delivery, both, you know, in the versions I've seen in French and in English, there's definitely a sense of, there's a different way of doing it. You know, he's careful to let you know that he, even though he's using this language that he's appropriated, that he's kind of leaving it in quotation marks. Uh, he's letting you know that, in fact, he's not subscribing to this. Although with Mal by Mal, I suppose 
you you could get a little confused if you were a diehard Maoist. It would be maybe stuff that you would rather had not gotten out in a, in a certain kind of way. But, I mean, it doesn't really look like a DeBoer film, and he goes a lot crazier, I think, than DeBoer does. But there's definitely more of a relationship between the kind of essayistic style that DeBoer uses in, say, Society of the Spectacle, and, you know, Chinois Go, well, let's call it Peking Duck Soup. They're, they're, you know, they're a little closer than The Girls of Camaray or Condialectics by Bricks. You know, in Condialectics by Bricks, he does not change a thing. He only adds the subtitles. If, you know, if you look at him, you know, shot for shot, they're the same movie. I was noticing today, as I was looking at that version of The Crush, which you sent me a long time ago, it is longer than the version of uh, Can Die Like Break Bricks. But there are many, many different versions of The Crush. You know, it was released in Germany. There's an English language release. Uh, that appears to be a, I don't know any Chinese languages, so I don't know if that's a Cantonese or a, a Mandarin release that you have there. But I have noticed small variations. I mean, there's, there's a difference of five minutes between those two. Now, it could be just, you know, transfers to me, but I, I have a feeling that there are some shots that got dropped out for one reason or the other in the version that in Dialectics Break Bricks is based on. Now, I know that both versions of, or I, I'm fairly certain both versions of uh, Dialectics Break Bricks are based on the same print. What happens was uh, DNA would buy a print, and then they would strike an, an internet from that, and then they would make prints, you know, they would get the tracks as well, the separate uh, dialogue and uh, music tracks, that's how they would, you know, that's how things are mixed at that time, where if you bought a foreign language film, it would be mixed down with maybe three tracks. Effects would be on one track, music on another track, uh, dialogue on another track, so the foreign distributor could dub it and remix it and just, you know, eliminate the uh, the original language track. I got the sense watching it today that there might be some small differences, but the problem is, of course, that, you know, prints get shown, they get mutilated. Uh, in 35, every time, you know, they build up a print onto one reel, if, which they do now, the ends of the leaders get cut off. Or every time print is shown, there's potential for it to break down. And that print of Condylectics Break Bricks, the subtitled one, well, both of them were shown multiple times. So the fact that there's tiny discrepancies between those isn't unexpected. The six minute difference, I would say, just has to do with that was the, you know, that was the print that VNA happened to buy and it was shorter than that other one. What happens after Peking Duck Soup? Why doesn't he make films anymore? Peking Duck Soup really got trashed by the press. It was not a commercial success. It got trashed mostly by French Malice, who essentially controlled journalism and control most people in the universities in France were Maoists, or they call them Maolak, Maolaters, like idolaters, only Maolaters, like Stalinolaters. Uh, he's, that's the one thing that, you know, you, you want to hear him get angry. That, I mean, he, he never goes crazy, but, you know, it's, he, he has many, many examples uh, of how he basically was kicked out of a research position at INA where he 
was collecting uh, films, Chinese films and literature. He got kicked out twice for his sort of anti-Maoist attitude. My guess is that that's the reason. And after that, he had to find another way to earn a living. So he ended up going to Taiwan and becoming a broker for, wait for it, nuclear fuel from France to Taiwan. He is a firm believer in their nuclear power, unlike people like René Rizel, who, uh, you know, was one of the enragés. And a lot of the situationists have become very écolo, very, you know, green ec- ecologists. What he saw was that in Taiwan, the, the French had really blown it. And they had a lot of um, opportunities, not only for business, but for cultural relations. He did a couple of really interesting things in Taiwan. One was, you know, brokering nuclear fuel to the reactors there. The other one was he created, he helped create a Taiwanese version of the so-called morning after pill. And he got it produced there very, very cheaply. He also saw to it that it could be produced in France very, very cheaply. It's amazing that what in Taiwan a woman can get for a couple of dollars if it were in the United States, besides the cost of the doctor visit, the drug costs 50 or $100 uh, a dose. So there's a pornographic profit margin involved there. Some of his other activities are also, he's a publisher. He does have, he, he's had a couple of publishing ventures. One was called uh, La Bibliothèque Asiatique, which if mentioned, you might uh, have noticed in uh, the Girls of Camaray, which, by the way, he always refers to as une petite culotte pour l'été, which uh, you might notice at the beginning, in the few, first few moments, it says, you know, a pair of panties for summer. That's how they advertise the film, and that's how he thinks of the title of it. Although, you know, it's become known in English, I guess, thanks to my translation, as the Girls of Camaray, but part of the advertising campaign there was just a picture of a pair of panties, and there was a voiceover with it, and that became a very, uh, that packed him into the theaters. Anyway, he published a lot of books, La Bibliothèque Asiatique. They're books on, on contemporary China and historical China. He's also had activities as a historian of photography in China and of Chinese art. And when I say photography in China, the first photographers in China were not Chinese, they were English. And he has seen to it that the work has been collected and preserved, and he's had it very rare prints transferred to Chinese and Taiwanese collections. It's not just a business thing with him, it's a cultural understanding, and I would say a love of Chinese culture. So he's had a lot of different ventures. He basically said, well, why did he stop making films after that? He was sort of financial necessity. That one kind of crashed and burned, and it was pretty expensive. And also, it's not one that packed him in. You know, if you think of the 1977, you have the height of Mao worship in France. You have Godard, who declares himself a Maoist. That film, uh, which I think is really an amazing film, I hope it'll, I'm sure it'll be released eventually with a good picture, as opposed to the piece of crap that's, you know, circulating now. But that basically shot down his film career. He does have at least one more film he'd like to make. I don't know if it'll ever get made, but it's basically 
on the French Revolution. And he sees the bloodiness of the French Revolution and the vast numbers of people sent to the guillotine and the terror as being the source of modern terror, state terrorism, both in Russia and in China. And he, he wants to kind of expose the roots of state terror in the French Revolution. I don't know if he has a title for that project. That's the film he would like to make now. Tell me when you and Renee finally meet and what happens there. I was asked by ProArts to do a little lecture on the situationist and on my own work. And they had some stuff from people in the Bay Area. They had some additional material from various people. The guys who did Call It Sleep, Isaac Cronin, he has a bunch of stuff. There's a whole group of people who collect situationist material. And obviously, Isaac Cronin was one of the people who was most influenced by the situationist, made Call It Sleep, and he had contributed material. They asked me to do a lecture, and I showed some of my own work, and I did a lecture on the situationists, and in particular on dialectic Frank Brick. A year later or so, there's a guy named Mabil El-Hajawi, who is a really amazing collector of situationist material. He had contacted uh, DNA, and they had a, uh, a version of condylectic spray bricks, which somebody else had done. And they showed it to me, and I had to, in all honesty, say it wasn't very good. Mine is better, and you should use it. But the difference was they had it in color. So this put me in touch with the, with the DNA through uh, Mady. And Mady was the one that sort of got all of us talking to each other. I had known Mady. Uh, I had met him through Tom Levine when I was teaching at Princeton, and I had been to his place. He was living in Philadelphia at the time and seen some of Mady's situationist collection, which is amazing. Well, Mady had since moved to San Francisco, which is where he had, you know, in Oakland at uh, Pro Arts, he had come up with the show. It's basically his collection of situationist material, which is substantial, and they wanted to do a film series. Having seen this, version they were going to use, I said, you know, let me take another shot at it. And so um, I looked at it, and I started putting my own subtitles back on it, and I realized that I had gotten a bunch of stuff wrong. And I could listen to it again, and I was given at one point a not entirely accurate transcription of the dialogue, which I could use, which was really helpful for things like, there's this guy but there are so many homonyms in French. You know, I, I could hardly tell if he was talking about Escarole or, or somebody. You know, I had no no idea. And there's another guy named Jean Daniel who they mentioned. You know, I thought it was Jean Daniel something or other because that's a typical form of a French, French hyphenated name. Well, it turns out this guy, Jean Daniel, was a correspondent for the Nouvelle Observateur. One of the differences between the translation that I did last year and this year is the fact that the Internet existed. When I did the original one, I couldn't just do a Google search on some phrase and have it come up. I was doing it all by ear with uh, the help of a, uh, a woman who's now a pretty well-known filmmaker named Nathalie Borger. 
who was helping me with it. And I would show it in San Francisco. I'd actually originally made the translation for a show at Exit Art. You know, we did the best we could with it, but I knew about the situation. She was a native speaker of French and could give me some, you know, could help out with some things which I wouldn't have gotten, but there was still a lot missing. And this time I had not only Renee Bionet at my disposal, but Donald Nicholson Smith and a woman named uh, Nicole Brenet, who was a fantastic, she is really critical to the revival of Bionet's work. She gave him a cup blanche at the Cinematheque, and he showed his work and then a couple of other films, one on Hu Jie, uh, a Chinese graphic artist and, I believe, filmmaker, and a film called Ne laissons pas les morts enterrer les morts. Let's Don't Let the Dead Bury the Dead. Uh, but it's basically a film which uses Nazi propaganda films and other films in a kind of dialogue with no commentary. And it's supposed to be very powerful. It's by Ehrlich, Bergman, and Novitsky. But I believe it's Novich. He actually subtitled that film. He's a real champion of the film as well. He's uh, done a lot to try to get people to show it and stuff. I basically met Renee through maybe El Hajawi. He put us in touch, and that's how I came to know uh, Nicole Brenet. And I had met Donald Nicholson Smith a long time ago, about 10 years ago, maybe, but I'd not really kept in touch with him. And this was uh, an occasion to renew that friendship. Donald Nicholson Smith was the translator of uh, Peking Duck Soup, as well as a version of the sub. There was a book, a kind of comic book, that was made based on the original subtitled version of Can Dialectics Break Bricks, and it was translated by Donald Nicholson Smith. They've been friends for a really, really long time. As you may know, Donald Nicholson Smith was part of the Situationist International. They've stayed friends even after a bunch of the people in the uh, English section or the British section were excluded, as they say, for God knows what unpardonable offense. They've known each other at least since the 1960s. I got involved because I knew maybe, and he, you know, had told me about this project. And I, of course, <laughs> it was taking place at the same place where I had done a thing the year before. So I got very curious. And when I realized he was in contact with DNA, I was copied on these emails and I looked at the material and I basically said, uh, this translation is not very good. It needs uh, to be improved. And I offered my services, and <laughs> I spent hours and hours and hours again trying to get it right. And I think we've arrived at a pretty good place now. You know, I had Nicole to work with, and I have other French friends that I could, you know, it's really great now that I can say, oh, what is this? What, what's going on in this clip? And I can send them the clip by email. You know, before, that just wasn't a reality. And so this version benefits not only from, well, it benefits basically from digital communications because I probably, I mean, I've never met a VNA face-to-face, so I, I've listened to his voice and recordings and, uh, you know, I've corresponded with him extensively. Anyway, so electronic media basically made this, you know, new version possible in, in several ways that... I mean, the original version of Kandialectics Bricks, Break Bricks that I did was done with the t- subtitles were done on an Amiga computer. And 
videotape. The advent of digital editing just made precise, you know, if you, if you screw up in a, when you're using videotape, it's tricky to go back and correct your mistakes. It's a lot more involved process than it is to, um, do it when you're, when you can precisely to the frame, uh, with utter accuracy, place the subtitle, go back and uh, change it, and it doesn't cost you anything. If you go back into an editing studio, that's going to cost you more money. This new version, in a sense, was made possible by um, you know the miracle of uh, digital editing, the internet, and a network of friends and that that who could connect me up with Janae. And also, really, his attitude is the best possible thing. That he's incredibly open-minded. He's thinking about his legacy. He's I guess he's in his early 80s now. And he wants to be sure that he leaves behind him uh, a record of his activities. Tell me a little bit more about this revised version of Dialectics. Where can people or when can people see it? And are you working on uh, restoring his other films as well? The revised version, it was shown in New York at Light Industry. And it was shown uh, in Binghamton at... Uh, University at SUNY Binghamton. It's not generally available unless somebody wants to, they can approach me and they can, I can arrange a rental. It's not available either for streaming or as a DVD, but that's the aim is to put it on a high quality DVD or even a Blu-ray, make a box set of, you know, the complete works. There's a group of people that have been trying to help them apply for money from the French government's cultural funding, but so far, no success, uh, interest, but no success. Who knows? He may just barrel ahead on that one if he can't get the government funding. But there's, they, they want to do 4K scans of the best available material, which is there, and they want to create a box set that will be to have subtitles in English. Spanish subtitles have already been made for pretty much everything. Although I have to say that with uh, Peking Duck Soup, and now by now, those are films which work better with a voiceover. They just do. It's, it's hard to tell because the picture quality is so crappy on Peking Duck Soup, but there'll be a multi, you know, a multi soundtrack version. There's already a, a, well, of course, the original French version. There's an English version. There is a, I don't know if it's Mandarin or Cantonese version. There is a Yiddish version. I think there will be a German version and an Italian version, at least it can dialectic to break bricks. The, the ones I was, those, those various, those uh, subtitling projects, the ones that exist right now for mile by mile, for example, are the, the Yiddish, the Chinese, the French, and the English. Uh, and those are, those exist, those are in the can. That could easily be done. It's just a matter of making a 4K scan and getting a good quality of it and then authoring this app, which is not that hard to do. Peking Duck Soup, I think, only exists in the French version and a the English version. There might be a Chinese version. He is, I would suspect there is. Can Dialectics Break Bricks exists in a Chinese subtitled version, a Spanish subtitled version, um, an English subtitled version. There are several different English subtitled versions, uh, but Mine, the one I did recently, is probably the best one. There is going to be a German subtitled version 
it's in, in progress and there's going to be an Italian subtitle version. Uh, oh, and there's going to be a Portuguese uh, subtitle version. There should be a Portuguese subtitle version as well. With a properly authored DVD, you just select the subtitles you want uh, or, or a Blu-ray. And it's it's not that hard to drop them in. And we've organized everything so that everybody's going to be on the same page with, you know, the subtitle files. So we can just uh, drop them in and it should be a no-brainer. Of course, it never is. I, I believe it's going to happen. That is the plan. When exactly that's going to happen, who knows? It could be this year. It could be next year. It could be later than that. I'd hope it would get done in the next year or two. But I don't exactly know when that's going to come out or who's going to publish it. Uh, also, if you, you know anybody or if anybody listening to the podcast uh, is interested in doing the comic book version of Condyolectic Spring Bricks, he's looking for a publisher for that, an English language publisher. I think he has a French one. And there's also, by the way, a what he calls an animated version, which is essentially a kind of, uh, sorry, of Condyolectic Spring Bricks. And it is a rotoscoped version of the entire film. You get a very different sort of perspective on, and, and by the way, that uses the dub version with, um, currently with English subtitles. Uh, it showed at Rotterdam and I think it showed in Madrid. Uh, there was a big retrospective in Madrid, um, organized by Carlos Prieto. We did the translations. I worked with him on the Spanish translation of Condyolectic Spread Bricks. If somebody wants to see the films, you can invite uh, Renee there and, you know, finance his airfare and things. And uh, if there are, at the moment, some economic hurdles to the work getting out, but for anybody who's interested, you know, it is possible. There's going to be a screening at Experimental Film Festival in, uh, I think it's in Lisbon that's going to be in the fall where the work's going to be shown. And I think it's going to be shown in Germany and Italy as well. So it's getting out there, but it, right now it's kind of on the, the film festival circuit. There's definitely a desire to make it accessible. You know, it's just the opposite of wanting to fetishize things. On the other hand, he, he wants better quality. I mean, the versions that have appeared in various languages of Condylectics Break Brick are just not very good. It's ironic in the, in the process of helping with, uh, Carlos with the Spanish version, I realized that he was in part relying on a previous Spanish version, which involved, which was relying on my, my English translation. And so it repeated some of my mistakes. So it's really funny to have that kind of loop back to me that my mistakes had been repeated in another language, uh, and that they were coming back to me. So, you know, he basically wants to filter out the less good versions of the um, of the thing and get it accurately translated and uh, move on. What are you working on these days? You know, this has been pretty consuming. The other projects I have in line is Peggy Alwesh and I did a film called The Dead Man a few years ago, the kind of 40-minute narrative film based on a George Bataille story. Uh, we have a 4K scan that I'm supposed to be uh, doing the color correction for that, which I need to get back to. I'm also, for about 10 years, I've been working on a translation of the autobiography of Esther Shub, who was a Russian filmmaker uh, who worked from the, the 20s to the 50s. Uh, she is, in some sense, 
I won't say the inventor because you can always find a, you know, a, um, uh, an early impressment for something, but she's one of the earliest practitioners of the full length compilation film, or she might say archive film or essay film or detouring film. Her best known work is Follow the Romanov Dynasty, at least in the English speaking world. And frankly, uh, there are not that many people interested in her work, even in Russia. I was kind of shocked to find the degree of disinterest there. There are other scholars who are interested in her work, and um, she made about oh, eight or ten features, uh, a bunch of shorts, maybe 20 shorts, and innumerable newsreels over her career. I've been work slogging away on that, and my Russian's not nearly as good as my French, so that's unfortunately I do have uh, friends who can correct my more crude mistakes on that. And finally, I'm working on a couple of my own projects, which have been sitting in the back of my mind for a while. I have an audio project where I've I've collected a massive number of versions of Mac the Knife, and I've started the project of superimposing all of them so that they're all playing simultaneously in this kind of weird, sludgy, multi-channel mess. Keith, thank you so much for your time. This was wonderful talking with you. Likewise, I'm, I'm sorry, this is a little less coherent than I would have liked it to have been. On guard, I'll let you try my Wu-Tang style. All right, we are back, and we were talking about can dialectics break bricks? And I just I want to talk a little bit about some of VNA's other works. I am really looking forward to the day that I can see a restored version of The Girls of Camaray, because it is what we see is fantastic. And I really can't wait to be able to see this in much clearer form. Now, again, The Girls of Camaray... It's actually two films. A lot of people will say that it is Terrifying Girls High School Lynch Law Classroom. Talk about an amazing title there. That it is just that movie. Also, it uses the opening credits for whatever reason, because there really aren't that good of opening credits, if that makes sense. that We don't take a break in Terrifying Girls High School Lynch Law Classroom to have like a whole title sequence. So VNA actually picked up the credits from Female Yakuza Tale Inquisition and Torture and used that credit sequence in order to then introduce the film and say that this is a detourn film and give a little bit of an introduction there. And then for the rest of the time, we're pretty much watching terrifying girls high school lynch law classroom but we are also getting inserts of well we're getting inserts of a lot of penises basically not only are we playing with this japanese pink film but we are also making it into more of a pornographic film and calling attention to this being pornography and where does pornography fit into the world the idea of censorship and really Girls of Camaray becomes this screed against censorship and also laying the blame at us, the viewer, because we are the ones who have standards and apparently uh, impose censorship upon films. So, it again, it's playing with all of these different things. I did not get a chance to watch that. Um, I did not get a chance um, to see anything but uh, Crush and Dialectics twice. So I'm, I'm going to 
put myself over to the side here and just say yes. I confess I uh, know of it uh, through what you've just told me and by its reputation, but that's not one that I have uh, seen seen before, even in this case, because I, I took my time to dive into the book about subtitles that you mentioned before and uh, back into the DeBoer. So that's really something to look forward to, though. Um, one of my favorite surrealist films, um, The Spirit of the Cypress. This is it, one of my all-time favorite surrealist films is doubly surrealist. So it was a surrealist who wanted to make a dance film called The Spirit of the Cypress, which is you know, this kind of um, dance around a cypress that's, uh, you know, in a really beautiful place. And uh, it's a kind of fawn and falling in love with this woman and whatnot. You know, it's like, it's it's one of those like 1920s kinds of things. But then somebody decided to interpolate right into the middle of this because you never see the faces of these dancing figures particularly well. They uh, interpolated like a hardcore porn insert. I, I have no idea from where that goes right into the middle of this, this like, you know, it's supposed to be beautiful, lyrical kind of thing. And then compounds it with another insert. And this is where it becomes my favorite. It's not just that there's like porn cut in, but there's this little boy looking through um, uh, some bushes at them. Uh, and he says, oh, not again. And as soon as he says, oh, not again, then it goes back into the rest of the normal movie, the original Spirit of the Cypress. And the screening that I went to, it's really funny. The, the programmers who had done it, they didn't realize that th- that they were showing the version with the pornographic interpolation. So it was wonderful surrealist prank that had moved forward like, uh, you know, 80 years into the future that this film was still pranking people. And it, it's one of my favorite movie going experiences ever. And I've tried to get a copy of it. And I thought it was on one of those like, you know, treasures of surrealism discs. And it turned out that it was the version without any, without the, the pornographic interpolation. And that's kind of fine enough to watch on its own. But it's just like one of those things where it, um, the interpolation of extreme content actually does open up works in really interesting ways. And part of why this was exciting wasn't just that it like pranked the audience. It's also that it, it, it brought out something that was in, that was in the original, uh, you know, surrealist dance piece, which was that it, it is very, sexual but it was trying to play it all through you know mythical ideas you know greek mythological sort of uh you know high culture uh <laughs> notions and to have this low culture inserted into the middle of it was really great and i think you know that's that's what makes it worth uh discussing in this um context i have this image in my head of that scene from fight club where he's working in the projection booth and why would anyone want this shit job because it affords them other interesting opportunities. Like splicing single frames of pornography into family films. So when the snooty cat and the courageous dog with the celebrity voices meet for the first time in Reel 3, that's when you'll catch a flash of Tyler's contribution to the film. Nobody knows that they saw it, but they did. Nice big cock. Which, anyway, wouldn't actually work because one frame, as we know, is not enough to really get your eye long enough. <laughs> but anyway... I also want to say that there are other films out there that, you know, I mentioned Guy Debord has had several films. There was one that he made, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember the title, but I remember Desaad is in it, uh, in the, in the title, not in the movie. He's not in the movie. It's 
one of these torture the audience type of films where when people are speaking, you don't see anyone on the, uh, on the film. If memory serves, it's been a long time since I've seen this. When, when people are speaking, the film is black and when they're not, the film is white or I might have it uh, reversed. And there's one segment uh, towards the end that I think is just 20 minutes of black, uh, (laughs) black film. And then it ends. And so people were coming out and like you know we've talked about movies and, and artwork causing riots before but this one almost caused a riot in the movie theater kind of thing and people just screaming like don't go see this don't waste your money but people if this was a screening in london of this film but people had driven all this way to see this movie because it was supposed to have this reputation and they're just like no god damn it i'm gonna go see this movie and then they go in there and they just felt like they were fucked over so it's kind of <laughs> kind of a, a kind of a prank, but kind of not at the same time. And yeah, and then also, uh, you know, Debor uh, was part of the Letras movement before it became the Situationist and or Situationist. And the Letras also had a lot of films. There's one uh, called Venom and Eternity, which they uh, kind of took uh, to Cannes, I want to say in 51, 52, something like that, and basically forced it to be shown. It ended up getting some sort of a prize, but it was this real big controversial movie. Um, the, I had read different things. I heard one version was four hours long. The version that's out there now that you can find is only two hours and three minutes long, but uh, the three minutes is enough to kind of get the idea of it. There's also one called, basically it translates to, has the film already started? It pretty much uses different title sequences and there's writing on the the screen and it just fucks with the image and it does that for about i'd say about an hour and so the title is very appropriate as far as you know has the movie actually started yet because we just keep going back to title cards for the movie as if it were starting it kind of reminds me and i'm sure somebody's done this i haven't seen it yet if they have but sometimes there are um the opening credits to films they will have the production company logos and some of those are so ornate let's say so obsequious that you don't know if you're watching the movie now or if it's still the production company logos and there are so many movies now that have so many production companies behind it that you can watch logos for a good five, 10 minutes before the movie actually starts. I'm sure somebody has taken those and combined them all together in order to make an entire movie of just production company logos because some of them are gorgeous and some of them are horrible, but my God, do they go on for a long time? I was reminded of, um, and this is more of a short film, but um, too many cooks, I don't know if you saw. Oh God! Yes, where it's basically the opening credit sequence of a show, and then it goes on and on and on, and it goes through a series of different genres, while at the same time there's a killer that's trying to kill everyone (laughs) through all the TV shows. That killer shows up in the last, not the second Jumanji sequel, but the first Jumanji remake, the one with The Rock, but not the one with uh, Danny DeVito. He shows up at one point in that movie. It took me so out of the movie because I was just like, oh my God, it's the Too Many Cooks guy. He's going to kill everyone. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think that also gets into a contemporary form of uh, detournement. And one of my favorites of, of that form, uh, Adult Swim has funded a lot of this work. And there's one in particular, unedited footage of a bear is a really interesting example uh, of this. It starts off as some footage of a bear that then gets interrupted by an apparent, you know, internet advertisement. But the advertisement, which is for, you know, some some kind of uh, new Prozac-esque uh, knockoff, goes on and on, and, and it's listing all these uh, potential side effects that it could have as the woman who is the, the lead character in the ad goes through an experience of a kind of horror movie breakdown over time in it. And this this sort of merging of comedy and horror, there's another one, another short film, Film, great choice that uh, works a similar kind of game with a Red Lobster ad that looks it, it, it looks to me like it was found footage uh, right out of the gate. And then it turns out that it's not found footage. And I don't want to go too much farther and spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it. It's a, kind of an amazing um uh, recreation, uh, both parody and detournement of, of the, the work. And that, that, uh, you know, these are, these are some really, really interesting movies that are being made that use these methods or, um, are inspired by those methods and, uh, and do some very, very strange things. Uh, it is, I, I, I think it's interesting, you know, just as we're talking about it, I'm realizing that this is a much more common language than I thought when we started talking about it. And I thought it was a pretty common language at that point, too. I think a lot of it has to do with when we consider as far back as hip-hop, the idea of sampling and then using samples and bits of things to create something new. I mean, granted, collage has been around for so long. I mean, probably my first experience of, of collage in a show was probably watching Monty Python when I was a kid and all of the Terry Gilliam animations. But I mean, the idea of cut up and collage and, and that, but I mean, just the explosion of the ability of people to be able to do it themselves nowadays with just a cell phone. Um, I, I definitely have to say that this is probably, it, it, it doesn't even seem to be something that we need to explain. It almost seems to be the water in which we all swim in. Well, and maybe that recommends this as a far less obscure uh, or specialist kind of film than we might have thought. I think the only thing that makes it specialist is understanding what they're talking about. <laughs> you know, like you have to have some working knowledge of, I guess, like student uprisings in France and um you know, sort of European socialism. You have to have read at least the Communist Manifesto, maybe Das Kapital, in order to get some of these deeper references. VNA also made a movie called alternately Peking Duck Soup or One More Effort Chinaman If You Want to Be Revolutionaries, which I think is a line from Dasad, speaking of something else that you should probably read. And that one is closer to what we've been talking about because it uses many sources and it's using newsreel footage. It's also using clips from movies and it just is this incredible hodgepodge of all of these things put together. But unfortunately, you know, I said how the, the girls camera really could use a facelift. The versions of uh, Peking duck soup. I have yet to see anything that, well, it's like probably fifth generation VHS, maybe more than that. You know, it's been a while since I've seen a really awful VHS bootleg, but 
unfortunately, Peking uh, duck soup is one of those. It's it's pretty bad. It uses so many different sources that it really starts to get into that collage work. It starts to get more into that Bruce Connor, Craig Baldwin territory where you are using clips to emphasize points. And it is even doing some interesting uh, flash cuts in there to a couple uh, Kung Fu films. And again, talking about maybe being a little bit over uh, people's heads. I mean, I know a little bit about Chinese history, but I do not know nearly as much as VNA, who's an actual sinologist. And they're making references to so many things in this that I'm just like, okay, yeah, I, I know Mao. Uh, I know uh, Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, yeah. I don't know most of the, these things that you're telling me, but it's a very interesting watch just to sit down and let it play and try to figure out what the fuck is going on. Man, we could go on forever with the, with the references to other stuff, but I do think uh, that it's necessary to bring up uh, Bertolt Brecht, who is name checked uh, within do dialectics break bricks at, at one point. There's a way in which this is following somewhat the, the, the kind of Brechtian pattern of trying to create uh, an experience for the audience that is delightful, but not so delightful as to prevent them from, you know, having a learning experience, like learning the uh, the sort of uh, political and structural analysis that uh, that Brecht is is bringing to bear, uh, for instance, in in one of his his plays, uh, or that uh, that you know the, the situationist ideas that are being brought to bear here, you know, wanting to make sure that that is something that you can learn while also providing enough entertainment value. And you know, of course, there's that that great uh, Brecht quote: uh, "The proof of the pudding, the proof is not in the pudding; the proof is in the eating." You know, which is very much about like trying to create as much as possible a pleasurable experience. And that makes me think that that perhaps along these lines, a more at least not successful in general terms, but successful for a wider audience kind of experience might be the you know the work of George Romero in his Living Dead movies. I would say particularly Dawn of the Dead, which if you watch, does quite a bit of um, you know Marxist critique of society, but really embeds it within a horror and action kind of setting. That's what I would always call sort of the dual levels. This was the thing that was always so great about a show like, for example, The Simpsons. There were things in there that if you were read enough, you would get those references. You would understand what they're talking about. But if you just watched it as a straight show without getting into that stuff, it could be enjoyable that way, too. So there was these sort of multiple levels. And to me, that's the kind of work that I've always been interested in. And that's the thing where, say, for example, if we talk about um, mass audience interest, just talking about can dialectics uh, break bricks, like I said, this film seems to be, at least in its use of, of those references and all of that, it's talking to a group that would understand what they mean, as opposed to try and take those ideas and put Put them into the plot so that people could just enjoy a kung fu movie or they could see it as a kung fu movie that actually has a social critique in it. To me, Mad Max Fury Road is a great action film. You can enjoy it as an action film or it's really about all of these other things. Bringing up The Simpsons, there's a, there's a clip now going around from that Henson show, Dinosaurs. And it's, it's become a popular clip in the last couple of weeks because it's the dinosaur family watching this um, uh, show, Triceracops, where the cops are apprehending, you know, someone who they've been chasing, but they stop and uh, they do a Marxist explanation. I mean, truly Marxist. It's not 
reading anything into it. It's it's like a full on VNA style dialogue between the cops explaining to the you know criminal who they're apprehending uh, why he's a criminal within the the given social structure and the work that actually needs to be done. I surrender. We're not gonna shoot you. They want to reeducate you. You see, son. You're just the product of an alienated economic class, lashing out because you feel powerless and unloved. You've been disenfranchised by the bourgeois power structure. That's right. I stole a car. I'm a thief. Well, son, if you think about it, all property is theft. Oh. Let me explain how the surplus value of the worker is being exploited in the marketplace. You what? see, when the means of production... Uh, control, we made a few changes in the shows. Oh, I feel this creaking in my head, like an old rusty machine that hasn't been used in a long, long time. You can kind of guess why that's a, a clip that's become really popular going around uh, Twitter uh, right now. It really resonates again with our, our current situation. And that's a show that was, you know, canceled after just a couple of seasons. Though one of the great things about Dinosaurs and its cancellation is that that show pulled a radical move in saying that the dinosaurs were responsible for the end of their own world. And it really did in the final episode. Uh, go, it didn't just leave off with these characters we've loved. It killed them off in a mass extinction that was their own fault. It's been a while since since that show was on or I've watched it. I think it was when it was on when I was a kid. And I remember kind of seeing it from time to time and looking in on it and going, yeah, it's kind of like uh, the Flintstones. Yeah, the Henson people were not messing around. And maybe this like Marxist turn came up because of cancellation. I think it's quite possible that like, you know, once uh, that, that, that they might have gone radical because they had been canceled and had really nothing to lose as long as they met up with uh, network standards and practices and just delivered whatever they want, you know, wanted to to do through the last several episodes. After you watch Can Dialectics Break Bricks a few times and you watch The Girls of Camaray, you go and you watch something else that's subtitled, suddenly you're not trusting the subtitles anymore. And you are wondering, is this what they're actually saying? Because I think that's an interesting thing, too, in the difference between what we have with uh, The Crush versus Can Dialectics Break Bricks and then versus uh, The Girls of Camaray, there was the redubbing of... Can dialectics break bricks? There was the the French version of that. So what you're hearing is kind of making sense with the subtitles because you're you know enough French to be dangerous and can go okay that word matches up with that word. Then you watch the girls of Camaray and it is still in its original Japanese and it is just the subtitling that is the detournement level. And so you don't know, you know, that word doesn't match up with that word. And because I'm not nearly as, as versed in Japanese as I am with French. And then you watch something else and you don't know the language and you think, is that what they're really saying? And it's really interesting that it's suddenly making you question every single subtitled film that you watch. That works that same way as downfall, the, all those downfall clips of, you know, Hitler screen. And you're right. Some of those are 100% brilliant. There are some where you just watch it and your mouth is agape going, how can they do this? How can they fit this argument into this meme? And it's just wonderful. But I've noticed the downfall of downfall over the last, say, three, four years. I don't see it enough. I don't see it as nearly as much. And I know memes have life cycles. But at the same time, now when I watch it, it's Hitler critiquing 
something that Trump is doing, and it just brings this whole other level to it, and it almost makes me too uncomfortable because I'm pulling for Hitler now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not good. Um, I always, I, I just always like it when he complains about the innocuous shit. It just seems like the most ridiculous nonsense. You know, the, so. the ending of Lost. Yeah, the, <laughs> things like that. You know. Yeah. Yeah, the ending of Lost. How uh, fanboys were yet were reacting against uh, the the uh, the Force Awakens. Yeah, there were so many good ones where it's just like this is stupid shit that people are arguing about, and now here's Hitler reacting to something that is going on with this, and that was great. He was a great pop culture critiquer, but then yeah, to use him now to critique something that Trump is doing is just it it adds one too many levels, and it just topples. All right, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. right we'll be back next week with an episode on vida sicus i think that's how you pronounce it i do not speak portuguese sorry as we begin a month discussing the cinema novo movement until then i want to thank this week's co-host robin spencer so spencer what's been keeping you busy lately bud you know i teach at northwestern so i'm just up this year of school i felt like i dodged a bullet in a certain way because i i didn't have full classes to teach remotely but now i'm worried that when i have to return to teaching and it looks like it's going to be remote i'll be way behind you know this quarter has been very very busy with like a lot of individual advising and you know i can manage that but it has been an an interesting education in uh, Zoom and Skype and FaceTime and what those technologies do to me in relatively uh, short order. So where that has left me is now I'm just on a project of reading as much Philip K. Dick as I can possibly get my hands on. And Rob, what have you been doing during your quarantine, sir? Uh, well, I've actually been in quarantine for quite a long time. Um, I think this is the first time I've been on the show in like over a year, is it? I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. It's been way so, too long. 
So what happens in between uh, projection booth episodes is I'm put into a block of ice and I stay there until you come over and thaw me out with the blowtorch so that I can come and do these lovely commentaries. That's because you've had the super soldier serum and then you crash landed in the Arctic. Don't try to blame me. Yeah, well, you know, um, I refuse to take uh, responsibility. Uh, if, if you were listening before, uh, when I was on, I was finishing up work on the Detroit Punk Archive project. So the site's up now. I continue to add new information. And um, the record set has just become available, although I am down to, like, the final number of uh, the black vinyl editions. I created 900 of the black vinyl editions. I have 100 of the color that I'm still waiting from for uh, to arrive from the pressing plant, the uh, the color editions. And that is because of, um, obviously, the, the quarantine. So that shut down uh, pressing operations for several months. So all of that is finishing, and I'm happy about that. That's been a long project. It's been about two and a half years. And it's always great to talk about that. I've been doing some writing and trying to uh, fix up the house that we bought and all that other fun stuff. So just life in general and uh, returned back to uh, the world of radio news about a year ago, although I am considering new options in terms of uh, what I'm going to do after that. So it is a period for me of much uh, consideration and contemplation as I sort of figure out my uh, place in the world and if indeed dialectics can break bricks which I don't think um, – I, I guess the answer to that question to the title of this week's show is no. Is that what we get? You actually have to use your fist. What is the URL for the Detroit Punk Archive, sir? Uh, it is that, DetroitPunkArchive.com. Holy cow. It's amazing, and you can find it there. If you're interested in buying a copy of this um, 2LP masterpiece, you can get it at HFVinyl.com, which is Holdfast. That's my uh, label. And uh, there's some available there. And, uh, of course, you know, I'm on the social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that fun stuff. And uh, it's always great to get a chance to uh, talk to you, sir, and get a chance to meet new people such as uh, Spencer. So thank you for having me on again. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. And please let me say, podcasters of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains.
You fought well yesterday. Your style is unorthodox, but effective. It is not the art, but the combat that you enjoy. The winning. Gotta hit me on the internet. Headquarters. W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-W-